The Money Show with Motel Haripe on 702. Let's walk the talk. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB, driving action-led insights that create impact when action with collaboration through the Insights Series. APSA is a registered FSP. Good evening and welcome to the Tuesday edition of The Money Show. My name is Mateo Huaripe, in for Bruce this evening, who's really on a special mission this evening, but I'll let him tell you all about it when he returns. Tonight, though, on The Money Show, we look at South Africa's tough automotive market, South Africa's biggest vehicle dealer, Motors has posted a sharp drop in interim profits hit by a strained consumer, some port delays which we all know about from Transnet and tough competition. CEO Osman Abi uh, joins us to discuss the latest results from the company. Then we focus on another credentials scandal in the local corporate sector. Langa Madongo, the co-founder of investment firm Summit Africa. On numerous profiles, Madongo claimed to have attended the London School of Economics and worked at Firms like JP Morgan. But a recent report shows that he admitted his highest qualification is an A level school leaving certificate he obtained in Zimbabwe. We'll talk to the man that spoke to Madonko about his decorated CV, News 24's Sikonati Manjanja. And then we chat to Andrew Woodburn, Managing Director at MROM. MROP, uh, Woodburn Man, the professional vetting company. Just how much responsibilities do companies have to make sure that these kind of things don't go through the cracks? Then later on in the show, we have the Africa Business Focus. Diana Games, the chief executive at Africa at Work, will cover that for us. All the business and uh, creative and interesting news coming out of the continent will be covered there. In our signals feature, we look at the rise of new collar jobs. Now, a trend is emerging where people are pursuing new collar jobs, often transitioning from blue-collar work to higher-paying roles, especially in the tech sector. We find out about that latest trend with Bronwyn Williams, trend translator and future finance specialist at Flux Trends. After seven, we have our personal finance feature. Is residential property a great investment? Are you somebody who is invested in residential property? You can tell us all about that. Looking at the benefits and pitfalls of investing in property, that conversation with Warren Ingram, co-founder of Galileo Capital. That's all on The Money Show tonight. The Money Show will give you all the tools you need to navigate the complicated world of economics and commerce, even if you're not a numbers person. The Money Show with Motel Faribe. 6 to 8 p.m. Making money makes sense. On 702 and Cape Talk. Now, this has been a very interesting start to the year, especially for South Africa's corporate sector in that we've had an economist uh, who has been uh, accused of falsifying her own um, you know, credentials. And lately, according to biographies of private equity summit, uh, of private equity group Summit Africa uh, uh, website and its marketing materials, they say Langa Madonko has degrees from the prestigious London School of Economics and the University of Pretoria and has worked for McKinsey and JP Morgan. Turns out that is not the story. News 24 are coming out to say on numerous profiles, Madonko had claimed to be at these institutions and worked and high profile banks like JP Morgan only to admit to them that he's high. Highest qualification is an A-level school leaving.
driving certificate he obtained in Zimbabwe. What does this say about South Africa's C-suite? Are we vetting as much as we should be? Uh, is everyone in the country's C-suite qualified? Because this begs the question and maybe even a pattern that we're starting to see that these things do fall through the cracks. A lot of the companies not doing their due diligence when it comes to the executive sitting on their boards, the executives are leading uh, their company. I mean, if you take, for instance, Summit Africa manages about 1.6 billion rand on behalf of various municipal pension funds, uh, Alex Forbes and the UK's development financier as well. So a lot of money moving hands and you want to make sure that it's uh, held by people that are quite credible. Joining us now about this particular story is News 24's Sikonati Manjanja. Sikonati, this particular story is shocking. Um, not exactly the markets, but South Africans on a, a pattern that's that we're starting to pick up in terms of credentials in the corporate sector in South Africa. What exactly did Langa Madonko admit to to you uh, when you were putting together this report? Good evening, uh, Matteo. Langa Madonko admitted to me that uh, basically his whole profile was a fabrication was a lie. He he admitted that he doesn't have any of those degrees that he has listed. And he he had claimed to have a a, a BCom honors from the University of Pretoria and another BA with honors also from the London School of Economics. Uh, In uh, and and when I when I confronted him, uh, he 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 admitted that uh, he didn't have any of those. And of course, he claimed it was a mistake and an administrative mistake, which uh, curiously, of course, he has repeated uh, that uh, administrative mistake himself uh, in numerous videos and promotions that he has done in recordings where he specifically claimed to have studied at the London School of Economics. Uh, He admitted in the telephone call with me that that was a total lie. He also indeed admitted, Montero, that uh, despite this being prominently listed in his own CV and uh, on on the company's website and other promotional material, he has never worked for J.P. Morgan and McKinsey and Company, as he claims. And, And of course, let's repeat, he said it was an administrative error. This is quite dangerous given that this particular company, Summit Africa, of course, manages 1.6 billion rand in funds uh, with uh, clients like uh, Telcom, Alex Forbes, and even a UK development financier. Um, you know, you need to know that the people sitting at the C-suite at executive level at these companies do check out in terms of vetting. Um, did the company say have anything to say about his role in the company? Does he actually handle the funds with an A-level certificate? Uh, Matteo, it's at least 1.6 billion rand that I did uh, put together using the material that I found. I see the company has now updated its website to also claim uh, that, that amount. Uh, the, the company put as much distance as it possibly could, it tried, between itself and Mr. Madonko, really down, uh, downplaying his role, uh, assigning him an administrative personal assistant role, if you may put it that way, because they said his job is just to call up clients and arrange meetings 
for, uh, for, for its executives. And that was disputed uh, by at least three of the organizations that I spoke to. Mr. Madongo was actually uh, the, the lead uh, representative of Summit Africa in those meetings and in many others. And of course, uh, the, the, the investigations that I did do, uh, Mr. Madongo was one of the founding directors of the company. He subsequently did resign as a director, but he, he remained an investment uh, principal in the company. And, and of course, he, 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 he claimed to be a major shareholder at about 24%. So uh, Summit Africa itself uh, tried to make me believe that the man uh, does not play uh, any more role than uh, just arranging meetings, which is not borne by the fact, it's not borne by its own material. In its own website, it, 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 it seriously promoted him as an investment uh, principal. It seriously promoted him as this uh, great executive who has put together about 68 billion rands worth of deals. That's in some uh, own materials that, that it has used. And it seems this decorated CV took Madongo to other places uh, last year re-elected for another three-year term as Deputy President of the Association of Black Securities and Investment Professionals uh, and currently serving on the board of the South African Venture Capital and Private Equity Association. So it is clear that he's been using uh, these credentials, this particular CV, to get ahead uh, in the industry. He's been indeed quite a high-flying executive. Uh, he's also representing the Black Business Council in the NEDLAC, uh, which, as we know, uh, deals with serious important issues in the, in the economy of the country. He's representing uh, absolute, he's, he, he's really uh, managed to fool a lot of people using these credentials that he readily admitted uh, when I confronted him uh, that, that, that they were all a lie. All right, that was Asikonoti Manjanja, journalist at News24, speaking, of course, around this uh, falsified credential scandal that's come out uh, covering that story. The man who have spoken to Madonko, who now denies uh, this particular scandal as an administrative error. Let's look at now what the implications are for the company in the industry. Andrew Woodburn, managing director at Amrom Woodburn Man. Now, Andrew, you are a professional vetting company. You look at the C-suite, you look at different boards in making sure that the members that join these corporate companies, multi-billion rand companies, uh, have the right members on the boards and the right leadership that check out. How do companies then have situations where things fall through the cracks? Yeah, good evening, Mata, and to the listeners. I mean, we go further. We find great people for companies, and part of that is vetting them, at which we use a portfolio of other services to vet them. But the problem, of course, Mateus, this pandemic, as I think we can now call it, uh, is really only the tip of the iceberg. It's getting worse. And therefore, what then happens is corporate South Africa will lift its game to ensure that the vetting is improved. But it hasn't always been this way. Some companies have always had the protocol that everybody they bring on will be validated, both their qualifications and various other elements of trust that you would want to ensure that an onboarded new exec meets, but not all of them have. And of course, founders and self-made men may well have just the gift of the gab 
and not necessarily the qualifications they claim. That's the question uh, I was going to ask after this. I mean, in, if you look at Langa Madonko, he seems to be a sharp guy. I mean, if he can handle a 1.6 billion rand in funds and uh, be in all sorts of, um, you know, executorship roles, it means that you are quite sharp. So is there a situation where you ask to headhunt someone or look for an executive and things like qualifications are not an issue? Well, look, the qualification element is a basic fundamental where a company who's looking for senior talent would like to know that they have, for example, both the technical skill, you know, the elements of knowledge that you studied in your degree, as well as the thought methodologies that one hones when you do a degree or further study. And then most importantly, because Matteo, you might put your money with an individual And I'm pretty sure you would want them to be in integrity with the appropriate ethics and truthfulness, both about themselves and to you about your investment. So these are critical elements of making hire. And I think our country is absolutely taking heed of this. I can tell you for a fact that I've had a number of chairmen call me over the last one month since December, specifically after the unfortunate events around Toby Lioka saying to me, as a matter of interest to both protect our company and each individual director on our boards, we would like to undertake an exercise of validation for each individual. And I think there we are absolutely seeing a response from corporate South Africa. But as you and I both know, unfortunately, in most cases, we're preaching to the choir. It's those organizations that are this rigorous that will find no problem. And it's the ones that are not stepping up potentially have embedded in them individuals who falsified things. I mean, this brings into question the ethics, the due diligence some of these companies do. What core responsibility do they have apart from leaning on your services uh, to make sure that on their own end, at least at human capital level, that the people they do choose to join the company are actually who they say they are? So, I mean, of course, one validates the claimed uh, qualifications. That's probably the easiest thing to do. Uh, Checking on the CV, ensuring that they did attend those companies, getting proper references on the individuals from trusted and integrity-based sources is the next, and that should be done within the Poppy Act because uh, we want to do this uh, according to our legal framework. And then the last piece, which is critical, is that what has happened up till now is, in fact, corporate South Africa has been amiss in both prosecuting and charging individuals found Mm. of fraud. Our Labor Relations Act allow us to prosecute for fraud uh, around qualifications, but many corporates have failed to do that. This is a fascinating opportunity because, in fact, the investment companies that place money, for example, with Summit, now have an opportunity to prosecute and set the tone and the process from here for a major prosecution based on somebody who falsified their credentials. And there is no downside to one of those investment uh, owning companies taking this action. Uh, There are many reasons why they wouldn't prosecute their own internal 
talent if found to be fraudulent. But in this interest, instance, I cannot see any reason why some of these companies wouldn't take appropriate action. And just quickly, Andrew, what are some of those red flags that you've raised with uh, either South African corporates or some of the clients that you service when you have picked up somebody has um, you know, a, a profile that you might deem dodgy? What, what, what exactly are you looking out for? So the first thing, of course, is has the previous life journey of an individual matched the destination they claim to have their degree from? And can they absolutely in an interview explain what they did during that degree, where they attended, why it happened, how they got there? Uh, Many of them may have won a bursary. And these are all what I love to celebrate, the truly successful stories of executive development across their careers. So what one looks at is those successful ones and then measures the others who are claiming to have done these against the data points we would expect to find. But now there are commercial processes and professional processes to double check that those degrees were claimed. And as I said, references that one would take. And in some cases, I'm not sure it was done in this instance, but the likes of McKinsey are often very proud of their alumni and will absolutely verify whether the individual attended that company or not. Not all companies are set up to do that. So there are many, many data points to check in on, firstly in a seasoned interview, and then secondly through absolutely paid professional assessment and uh, verification agencies that will give you the feedback of whether these claims are valid or not. And it seems, Andrew, a lot of companies in South Africa in need of your services of late. Andrew Woodburn, Managing Director at Amrom Woodburn Man. The Money Show. The Markets. Wayne McCurry from Wealth and Investments at First National Bank covering the markets with us. Another weekday for the JSE. Uh, industrials down 1.5%. Financial banking stocks down a half a percent. Mining shares, uh, you know, in positive territory by more than a half a percent. Wayne, uh, welcome to the money show again. Uh, we know Motus not having a good day of it, saying a lot of households under stress. And it's a bit harder to move some cars off the showroom. Yes, very much. I mean, when you consider the environment that you that that they operate in, not dissimilar to Supergroup, you know, you can't expect them to do well. So I think, given the circumstances, it's not a bad set of results, and certainly the market also thought so because the shares basically unchanged. But it's very, very difficult. Obviously, operating environment, motor car sales, and lots of your clients buy on HP, if not the overwhelming majority. And interest rates are high. So, you know, you just there is just no real disposable income available to them. And, of course, the weakening rand doesn't help their input costs either. But I think given the circumstances, I think are not a bad set of results, to be honest. Then looking at pick and pay, uh, a tough Friday that they had last week, losing, I think it was 16%, if I can remember the number correctly. Of course, a lot of movements there happening at the company, the possible listing of boxes, stores, but also that, uh, you know, the the, the share buyback definitely from the shareholders. Um, You know, this raising of capital, is it causing jitters amongst the, the investors on the market as to where pick and pay will go next, especially under a new CEO. Yeah, well, look, I mean, pick and pay, you know, whenever a company comes out with bad news, you know, just get all the bad news out front in one go. So not dissimilar to transactions capital. We had one lot of bad news from pick and pay and everyone thought, okay, this is, we know everything now. Then you get the second dose of bad news, which was actually terrible news. 
you know, you don't sell your good asset unless you really want to. I know that I mean, they're keeping a majority in Boxer, but they are selling off a lot of Boxer to actually raise capital. So you're selling off a good asset to raise money. <clears throat> and then they're doing a rights issue. And the rights issue is incredibly expensive when your share price has been trashed. And you're going to have to offer those shares at a big discount to essentially force shareholders to take up their rights. So this is not good news all around for pick and pay. And I mean, the share price was creeping up, creeping up until that, that big announcement. And then, you know, as you said, it was hit 15% odd. And it's down another 4 or 5% today. I mean, it's really, really tough for pick and pay because the competition is is severe and the competition's really good. They know what they're doing, and especially ShopRite checkers. I mean, I first heard about the potential pick and pay turnaround in the late 1990s, and we're still waiting for it. And we're still waiting for that particular turnaround. Of course, one of the juggernauts in retail, but of late, really, really suffering uh, on the market. Looking then at the RAND, up more than 1% against the dollar. A lot of emerging uh, market currencies taking advantage of a weaker dollar. Are the jitters around the cuts on interest rates in the world's largest economy? Look, the dollar has had such an incredible run, and justifiably so, over the last while. Cycles do turn. I mean, we're in a commodity down cycle, which is never good for uh, currencies like the RAND. And hopefully over the next two to three years, we get a commodity up cycle and things start to look a little bit better. I mean, fair value for the RAND is probably around 17 against the dollar. I know it sounds outrageous, but I think we could get there in the next two or three years as long as we do get a commodity up cycle. Should we be worrying about a stronger dollar given, uh, you know, what uh, the Treasury is doing, uh, borrowing from the uh, contingency reserve uh, uh, um, account? Well, that, that's both good and bad news. The bad news is quite correctly, as your previous, in, your previous interview stated, you know, you are depleting the, the wealth of the country, essentially the reserves of the country, but you're also not borrowing that money. So therefore, your, your fiscal position looks better Whereas, let's call it the Reserve Bank or the country's position looks worse. You know, so they probably balance each other out. So I don't think the land weakness is much to do with uh, this, this contingency reserve. You know, maybe the market did get a bit of the jitters pushing it up to 1930. Uh, but it seems to have come back quite nicely today. And fundamentally, our currency is still driven by the commodity cycle more so than any other factor. All right, taking the good uh, with the bad on the market uh, today. The JSC down 479 points, uh, led down by industrials, which were down 1.5%. Wayne McCurry uh, from Wealth and Investments at First National Bank covering the markets with us tonight. Motel Baribe on The Money Show. 6 to 8 p.m. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB, driving action-led insights that create impact when actioned with collaboration through the Insights series. APSA is a registered FSP. Now looking at the results of a motor company, Motus, a half-year profits dipping by 27% amidst falling new vehicle sales. Motus is an African automotive group, the importer of brands like Kia and Hyundai, really saying that it's been a tough, tough market in South Africa in, tra- in terms of trying to get those new vehicles off the showroom floor. We're going to be joined by Osman Arby now, the CEO at Motus, to tell us more about these particular uh, results. Uh, Osman, you're saying there is a lot of competition in the market. Which particular brands are pressing against your market share? Yeah, 
Matteo, good evening and good evening to your listeners. I think we need to get perspective here uh, as far as Motors is concerned. We've got 35% of our income from foreign sources and 65% from South Africa. Yeah. And with the four legs of the business, which is the import and the retail, two legs, including the car rental, the mobility solutions, and we've got the aftermarket parts. So if you look at the aftermarket parts, that's doing a great job, great results. Um, mobility solutions, great results. And uh, the pain came from the importers where we're in a very competitive market. But just to give some perspective, the turnover has grown for, uh, for the six months by 11%, EBITDA by 13%, operating income is flat, and the, the minus 27% you're talking of was caused by the interest bill in the group. What caused the interest bill was the big acquisition we did in 2022 for 3.7 billion rand, and we were we are slightly overstocked in vehicles and in the car rental fleet, we've pumped up that significantly after COVID. So the interest in the comparative period was artificially low. We had, we, we high at the moment, but the answer is somewhere in between. So it's not correct to just look at the minus attributable income, but you've got to look at the trading of the business and the trading gave us 13% increase in, in, increase in EBITDA. Getting to your question on the vehicle market, yes, the vehicle market in South Africa is flat. And it will be flat for the next 12 months, which is between 520 and 540,000 vehicles. South Africa sold last year, they'll sell this year. And there isn't a stimulus in the economy. Now, the stimulus I'm talking about, what do we need? We need a, a reduction in interest rates. We need new employees into the market. We need stability in terms of the economy. We need power outages to stabilize. And as long as we don't get this economy on a stable footing, we're not going to be able to pass the 540, 550 kind of mark for vehicle sales. And if that happens, then all the motor businesses together with this economy are going through a very difficult period and will go through a difficult period in the next 12 months. So unfortunately, there's nothing at the moment to say that this market is going to grow in the vehicle market. There's more customers. The, there'll be ease on the fragile consumer. There's none of those signs at the moment. And being an election year makes it even harder. Then looking at, um, you know, some issues that you're dealing with in this particular market, I mean, the port delays uh, that we've seen since uh, late last year, how has that affected the business uh, in terms of lead times? <coughs> Excuse me, we're quite fortunate that on the vehicle side, the ports haven't impacted us negatively in a very material way. We had about 110 containers waiting there in December, but within five weeks, we got those containers out of the system. So there was an impact, but not material. I can't blame uh, any of our results on the container delays because we carry enough stock. We make sure that our supply chain management allows us for three, four weeks of uh, delays anywhere so that wasn't a major problem in our business the south korean brands that you do import into the country uh, the likes of hyundai and kia uh, holding back on entry level uh, kia rios hyundai atos uh, for instance uh, how much inventory do you have of those in terms of new cars because of course they have been halted and will that affect you uh, competing especially at entry level so in south africa Below 240,000, there's only five vehicles. Three are Suzuki, one is Renault, and one is Toyota. So the other manufacturers like Hyundai, Kia, 
VW cannot produce cars and sell them in South Africa below 240,000 Rand. So it's not a Hyundai Kia problem, it's a manufacturing problem to get the cost base so low. They find it because remember in South Africa, you pay 15% VAT plus ad valorem could be up to 25%. So you add all those to the cost of a car makes it very expensive. The South African market is a very tight market. As a result, the cars sold below 700,000 make up about 70% of the country's sales. So you can see how we skewed in terms of the lower end of the market than the top end of the market. The other thing is that the Korean cars, like the Suzuki's and the Renaults, 91% of the Renaults come from India. And that's what makes them competitive because they made in rupees and sold to us in dollars. And that's what makes it competitive. If those cars were produced in Europe, we wouldn't be able to afford them. Hyundai and Kia, about 70% of their cars come from India as well. Suzuki, Virtually 90% of their cars come from India as well, because if they're made in another currency like the yen or in a dollar currency, it's virtually too expensive to bring the cars in. So, so the South African market is importing more than 50% of its vehicles from India. And that's what's allowing us to even make these sales. If our 50% of these cars were coming from a European country or from any other economy, we'd really battle. So you can see how the economy is impacting the affordability of cars in South Africa. It's a very uh, tough uh, price point uh, given that households in the country are under pressure. You already spoke about uh, the higher interest rates that have been uh, quite stubborn uh, for almost two years in the country. So it means a lot of people are not looking at new cars. How have the used car sales gone uh, over the period given that people can't get into that high price point of new car sales? So because the new car prices they don't reduce the price, but they allow discounts. They give you 30,000 Rand on the bonnet. So they stimulated the market in that way. But the pre-owned market has picked up slightly. Um, and there is quite a bit of activity in the pre-owned market. Uh, but the new car market is not on a slippery slope. It's on a flat slope. So it's been flat for two years. It'll be flat this year. It was flat last year. There are customers, not easy. But the, the demand is still there for South Africa to sell 540,000 vehicles. It's still um, not bad at all. But the new market has picked up slightly. And being in a diversified business with parts and workshops and other businesses gives us a bit of stability and sustainability. Motors are reporting an 11% increase in revenue at 57 billion rand and a 1% increase in operating profit at 2.6 billion. Can you tell us about your other businesses in the UK and Australia? How have they fared uh, this time around? I remember the last time I spoke to you in September, the UK had its own economic problems, but it was helped by the fact that you were selling commercial vehicles there. Perfect. That's exactly the case. So in the UK, We've got 80% of our vehicles sold from our dealerships are commercials, and commercials are still doing well because they're your customers, not the man in the street. It's corporates buying your trucks, you're servicing their trucks. And in the UK, you service trucks for physical fitness twice a year. So that helps as well. Um, so our passenger market is small where, the, where it's, that business is battling, but it's a small uh, part of our business. The area that's grown very well for us as motors is the aftermarket parts business. And by June this year, our aftermarket parts business uh, could produce a billion rand EBITDA. 
So you can see we did, we did small acquisitions and one big one, and now it's come to fruition. So it's not only dependent on uh, cars, which is a small part. We've got the trucks, and now we've got the aftermarket parts business as well. And the car park in the UK that we service, uh, not we, but we and our competitors, are 32 million cars. There's 40 million cars in the UK. 32 million are outside warranty. So there's a big uh, pond that we're fishing in, and uh, the consumer is less sensitive to parts prices than new car prices. So uh, the UK business yeah. is doing well. Australia is doing quite nicely. They've had a bit of a lag. There was a shortage of stock. The stock, the stock has arrived, and Australia is doing quite nicely as well. So uh, those two jurisdictions are doing well for us. Then coming back to the South African business, you're saying it's a tight market, very competitive. Um, you know, a lot of Chinese brands are coming into the market at a, a, a lower price. Um, what is the strategy then going forward if entry level is not where you're looking? How, you, how do you then make up the numbers uh, if you can't compete at that, at that band? So we're fortunate in the sense that we're talking to our manufacturers, our OEMs. That means the Hyundais and the Kias of the world, the Renaults of the world and the Toyotas, VWs. We talk to them all the time. And remember, they also don't want to lose market share. So they come to the party and assist. So the entry level is not good for everyone. It has a place in the market, but it's not a growing market. The market that's growing will be between 250 and 750,000. And that's the market we play in very actively. And we play above the 750 as well, but that's a smaller market. So we get a lot of assistance from the OEMs and they help us stimulate the sales. For example, you hear the advert on the radio, buy a Hyundai Creta and you get 40,000 Rand on the bonnet. You hear Toyota doing the same thing, VW doing the similar things. So all the manufacturers are now assisting the retailers with uh, money on the bonnet yeah. market. Essentially using trade-ins then uh, to, uh, to be able to get uh, customers yeah. to get new, car, uh, new cars. Yeah. Okay, that was uh, Osman Arby, uh, CEO at Motors, saying the market is tough, but they're coming up with new strategies to make sure that they can still have a big market share in South Africa's car market. 702 and K-Talk. Motel is on The Money Show. Welcome back. We're getting into Bitcoin now. Bitcoin is now consistently over that $50,000 mark in terms of trades. Bitcoin hitting that $57,000 mark for the first time since late 2021, driven by investor demand and MicroStrategy Inc. To tell us all about that and really help unpack us, uh, help unpack this uh, particular world that is can can can, quite, can get quite confusing as it is tripping me up right now. Carl De Yaga, a blockchain R&D lead at CSIR. Carl, the last time we spoke about Bitcoin uh, touching that million rand mark per Bitcoin, uh, we, I thought it was a flash in the pan, but clearly it's not. It's quite consistent now. I'm a theory, yes. It's, uh, it's, um, you know, and I think for some of us, this was expected, you know. So Bitcoin, of course, driving this demand really is, is, is the ATS news. There's huge inflows. We're talking, um, probably net inflows in the first two weeks of ETFs, these exchange rate funds in, in, in the US. Net inflow is probably topping $6 billion. That, that means that that's new money that's been uh, flowing into the asset class. Um, and that's really been driving the price up. And with these four-year cycles, Bitcoin going through these normal four-year cycles every with, with its halvening, which is a protocol attribute related to its monetary policy. Um, you know, w- w- uh, every four years we have like this massive bull run um, together with this ETF news. It seems like currently there's no stopping.
Do you think with the introduction of those ETFs, there's a lot of trust now, a lot of regulation around Bitcoin and a lot of other fund managers starting to understand, um, you know, the, the benefits or the opportunity of making returns uh, from the cryptocurrency? Yeah, Wall Street's been waiting at the doors now for 10 years. The first um, ETF application was launched in 2013 and the SEC, the US regulator, have been denying them for years and years and years, finding new reasons. And in, and in the end, it's uh, the US court system, uh, the, the judges there that actually forced the, its approval now. Um, and so, you know, Wall Street's been very hungry for some Bitcoin exposure and they've, they haven't had sufficient vehicles. You've mentioned MicroStrategy just now. That was one vehicle, MicroStrategy being a publicly listed company, publicly traded company in the U.S. that's been buying Bitcoin like crazy, actually making debt. Uh, to buy billions and billions of dollars of, of Bitcoin and their share price, therefore, being completely backed by Bitcoin. So, you know, there were those kind of routes, but it was very unconventional. You know, with the ETFs now being approved, it's basically a stamp of legitimacy. It's now retirement funds, it's investment funds, it's hedge, it's hedge funds, it's all these regulatory, uh, or, all these regulated firms that can now invest in the asset class with, of course, Black, BlackRock reading the, leading the charge here, BlackRock being the second or the largest asset manager in the world, and you know, with their marketing power now behind the asset class, things actually look very positive. This uh, 32% increase for Bitcoin, does it bring back the interest in other uh, coins like Ether and uh, Dogecoin? We are seeing some of that moving into that market as well, or spilling over to that market, if I can say. I think, you know, there's also some prospects of a potential Ethereum ETF, ETF being approved later this year. There's been some applications that's been launched in, in Wall Street as well. So, you know, perhaps we can see, we, we can expect a similar run towards that approval as well uh, later this year or maybe next year, depending on, on how the SEC is going to um, approach that one, that, those applications. So we are seeing some um, some some of these liquidity spill, spill over to the funds. You know, Bitcoin's always been the main driver in the cryptocurrency space. It's been the oldest one. It's been the most resilient one as well. Um, and, you know, uh, dragging along some of these altcoins. But, but these are, I think, much, much more specific speculative you know the the um, the fundamentals of some of these coins especially like something like dogecoin is non-existent it's a meme coin it acts like a meme stock in 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 many cases you know and um i would i would be very careful uh you know to 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 invest in those if you want to speculate you want to play around then sure but but be careful you know the ets has only been approved for bitcoin and there's no indication actually of um other than ethereum perhaps you know of any uh other approvals of etfs in the near future clearly something to benefit from bitcoin's surge but don't throw all your money in it uh, that's what uh, carol diaga is saying there thank you for that conversation he's of course a blockchain research and development lead at the csir the Money Show will give you all the tools you need to navigate the complicated world of economics and commerce, even if you're not a numbers person. The Money Show with Motel Faripe. 6 to 8 p.m. Making money makes sense. On 702 and Cape Talk. On the other side of Eyewitness News, you can join us for our Signals feature. We're looking at pivoting in your career, the rise of new college jobs. Uh, that is, of course, uh, with Bronwyn Williams, the trend translator and future finance specialist at Flux Trends. But for now, time for Eyewitness News.
The Money Show on 702. Let's walk the talk on 92.7 or 106 FM and DSTV channel 856. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB, driving action-led insights that create impact when actioned with collaboration through the Insights series. APSA is a registered FSP. Now let's get into the changing world of business and our signals feature, looking at the rise of new and blue-collar jobs. Now there's a trend emerging uh, where people are pursuing new-collar and blue-collar jobs, often transitioning from blue-collar work to higher-paying roles with better hours. Now, this is happening as individuals gain technology-related skills through non-traditional educational paths. Uh, In particular, in China, some young people are moving away from white-collar, high-pressure jobs to embrace manual labor, aiming for a better work-life balance. Looking at some of these changes and trends, uh, we joined now by Bronwyn Williams, a trend translator and future finance specialist Flux Trends. I think, Bronwyn, let's first start with new-collar jobs. What do we mean when we say that? Yeah, so new-collar jobs, as you just articulated there, are essentially jobs that are higher paying or that might be earning as much as what we would traditionally think white-collar jobs would earn. In other words, this would be affluent, living standard kind of supporting jobs, but you didn't get them through a traditional degree. Instead, you would have got them through some sort of vocational training or technical school. I think this is a really interesting trend for South African market particular in that we have moved away from funding vocational schooling for school children. The nice thing about vocational schooling is by the time you graduate from school, you are employable and you're employable for a market that needs and wants you. I think our perception around vocational training is still that it is a blue collar job, but actually vocational training in this new world of work is much more this so-called no-collar jobs, these jobs that give you lots of career flexibility to be a digital nomad, to earn dollars or pounds or euros or whatever while still living in South Africa, being a telecommuting worker, working in the tech space, working maybe in the social media space, the marketing space, sales space. There's so many opportunities there for people who have, instead of the traditional four-year degree or professional certification, instead some sort of microcredits or technical vocation. And microcredits are another way to get these sorts of jobs. These are shorter courses, essentially, that will give you the skills you need to get a job that the market has in supply at the moment. I see a lot of these on social media where you'll have someone say, mm. I'm now uh, a coder. I learned, through, I learned this through like uh, a website where I was uh, doing the course over six months. I didn't really go to a traditional university where I learned the skill. But after getting that certificate, I have now been Uh, getting offers uh, from around the world. I don't even have to leave uh, my country uh, to go Mm. and walk into an office. I can do it from home and I'm earning this much. Um, You know, is this, uh, you know, the push coming from the tech tech side of things, uh, given that AI now is a thing, um, you know, coding is a thing and a lot of companies are looking for that particular skill in the jobs market? Well, the point is with these no-collar jobs is that the skill that the market demands is always shifting, which is why you don't necessarily want to invest for, even now, if you have to get like a master's or doctorate, like eight or 10 years of your life, learning a skill set that could become redundant before you are ready to retire, which is happening to a lot of people. With these no-collar jobs, instead, you can continually upskill and learn and adapt to what the market wants and and therefore essentially be able to maintain your own competitive advantage in the workforce. But it's quite a mindset shift 
shift, particularly, again, in the South African context where many people are pushing to be the first in their families, the first in their generation to go to university and get that degree. But this understanding that the degree is not the prize, the prize is really being employable and in demand and being able to demand a good salary, a good living wage for yourself is the goal. It's not the goal to get the certification. So even when you're saying there that on social media, you say people have got a certain certificate and then it's getting certain jobs, that's already kind of the wrong way to see it. It's rather these people have gained the right sort of skill sets in demand. And really what this whole trend is about is moving away from certifications and pieces of paper and rather to demonstrable skill, which makes these jobs parallel to what we understood blue collar jobs to be, right? I think like, yes, your electrician needs to be certified, but essentially you need to be able to do the job. You don't need to have a certification to be a carpenter, to be a joiner, to be a contractor. You need the skill. You know, you need the skill to actually be able to do that job. And we're trying to transition this whole understanding of it's the skill and the value that you add now to the digital economy and to the non-trade-based professions. But in essence, actually, they have much more in common than no-collar jobs have in common with say, so-called white-collar jobs, which are gate-kept by pieces of paper, very expensive pieces of paper that cost both companies and people who want to get educated lots and lots of money and lots and lots of years of their lives. Now, in South Africa, vocational uh, blue-collar jobs have a very bad PR in that a lot of people, like you say, Mm. would like to take the university route and don't go to FET colleges in the country to gain uh, different skill sets that can still earn them as much as a white-collar job would do in South Africa. Uh, Do you then think we are ready for the technical, uh, the technological movements then that the rest of the world is doing in terms of uh, getting web, web-based jobs when we're still having to grapple with, um, you know, the, the, the bad PR that vocational jobs get? <laughs> well, it's interesting that you say that because it's not just about going for the web-based jobs. It's about understanding the actual value of the time of your life, those years when you are young, when you are hungry. What are you investing your time in, not just your money in? And we have a problem in South Africa in that we confuse the means with the end, right? We tend to think that getting the degree is getting the prize, but that's not. Your degree is just a means towards the lifestyle that you want to live, the living that you want to build for your future family, right? So we have to be mature enough to let go of means that aren't going to necessarily get us what we want. I'm not saying that you shouldn't go study a four-year degree, not at all, just that there's other options to get to that lifestyle. And that's what this conversation is all about. You can live in the same street as someone who's gone and done the CA route. And we do support a lot of CAs from South Africa as there definitely are some degrees that are going to give you a lot of return on investment. But there are other alternatives. And I think that one of the sort of bellwether trends that we have to pay attention to is the other side of this whole sort of conversation that you brought me into. And that's the pivot where people who have done the full 14, 12-year degree thing, got the professional certification, got the pieces of paper, tried out that white career found it not, not all it is cracked up to be uh, we're Seeing having a bit of a plumbers, difficulty uh, Bronwyn with your line if you can just hold on for me mm-hmm. there just try to get you on a more better line uh, looking at this particular trend of uh, the rise in new and blue collar jobs I don't know if you can hear me clearly I can hear you perfectly fine All right, let's try that again. Now, picking it up where uh, we're seeing uh, then a change in China specifically of younger people going for Mm. blue-collar jobs to to get a better work-life balance. Well, it's not just in China. I think this is really important. In fact, when we started tracking this trend from white-collar jobs towards blue-collar jobs, again, this whole thing, it's the means versus the end. The end we want is a good life, a good living standard 
added. And people have done the long degrees, got the white collar jobs, got all the pieces of paper, are finding the people that didn't go that route are living just as a successful life as they are and have a much better life work balance, as you said. All right, now, Bruno, let's try to get you then on a, on a more perfect line so we can hear about all those trends. Of course, uh, Bruno Williams, the trend translator and future finance specialist at Flux Trends. Tonight, talking about the rise of new and blue-collar jobs. We're going to just try and get her on a clearer line before we continue. You're with Motel Faribe on 702 and Cape Talk. Chatting about trends where the world of work is changing, and that's what uh, Signals is on uh, is about, rather, on uh, The Money Show, looking at new-collar jobs, no-collar jobs, and white-collar jobs. A lot of younger people are really... Uh, you know, exploring different paths in terms of their careers. Uh, in South Africa, they're called unemployable. So some younger people are going into tech, looking at healthcare, looking at engineering, looking at software careers that they can do from the comfort of their own homes. Bronwyn Williams telling us the world of work is changing. Joining us on the line now on The Money Show. Uh, let's pick up then on the quality of life and how that is driving the changes in the world of work. Sure, yes. Yeah, we're referring to white-collar workers who are leaving their corporate jobs that they paid a lot of money, spent a lot of years studying to get. They're not finding that that they're getting the return on life quality that they wanted from that sort of a career path. And this is a trend that we spotted all over the world. The earliest incidences of it actually we picked up in Europe, in places like Spain and Italy, where we found young professionals moving back to their ancestral farms, the farms that were run by their grandparents who moved away from the farms towards the city and starting to take up micro-farming type of projects, very sort of eco-friendly, often specializing in quite maybe, if you want to use the term, kind of hipster goods, maybe it was pomegranate seeds here or Nugo bars over there. But this idea that you can build a life for yourself through your own labor and actually live a very nice quality of life comparable to the life or even better than the life you were able to live in the city. So this this whole movement of people giving up traditional high status white collar jobs to focus on the end, which is the sort of life you want to live, is a very deep trend. And we saw saw this with life audit that people did post COVID, figuring out what they were doing with their life, you know, reflecting on your mortality, saying, am I in the right career path? Am I living the sort of life that's going to give me joy? It's going to give me flourishing. It's going to give my children the best started life. Many people reconsidered that, and these trends have accelerated since. I think where China gets interesting is that China was such a status and high-performance-driven society to see young people, even in that society, not first in that society, but even in that society, giving up their white-collar professions because they, A, weren't getting paid enough money for that. They could make more money doing manual labor or doing things with their hands, being artisans and crafters, or because the stress was just not worth in terms of the status they were going to get from their communities. This seems to be quite a global shift. I think we've got to sort of pay attention to that here in South Africa. And I think the opportunity is huge. We can tell young people there's so many different ways to live the life that you want. A degree is just one path. If you don't get into the university you want to get into, your life is far from over. There are many people who are going to do that degree and going to come back and end up doing what you're doing. You might even have a head start if that's your sort of path in life. Those no-collar jobs, also great opportunities for people who want to be lifelong learners. To just keep ahead of the skills, keep ahead of the market trends and keep on going. Understand that education is not something that's one and done in your 20s, but rather it's a learning journey, almost like a game you get to play for as long as you want to play it. Or again, blue collar work. We have to have the self-confidence in ourselves to understand that blue collar work is actually going to be aspirational for a whole class 
of very wealthy people across the world. It's not something to be ashamed of at all. These are valuable skills that are very hard to automate. In fact, they might be the most future-proof careers out there. So we need to be less um, perhaps sort of vain or perhaps prideful when it comes to the sorts of sorts of careers we promote to young people and the way we talk about professions because all these professions are valuable and all of them can give us a good quality of life. And so we need to break down those class stigma and these sorts of signals I think are hugely powerful for telling these stories to young people that whether you're in China or Italy or Spain or South Africa, you can build a life with whatever skill set actually suits the kind of life that you want to live and you can live a very nice lifestyle. And as we wrap up, uh, Bronwyn, does a no-degree world or working world mean that universities, traditional ones, have to worry now in terms of the intake of students coming in? Or will still have those traditional um, uh, courses, those traditional careers still taking um, you know, most of those intakes for the universities? Well, I think in South Africa, those trends are much longer run because of the sort of status-orientated conversations we've had this evening. But there are very significant signals coming out of the U.S., which has actually led this awful degree inflation that has priced and educated so many people out of the job market, that universities, yes, are under pressure. Young people are not seeing a return on investment. And particularly your second-tier and third-tier universities are struggling to attach new or attract new incumbents. Your really, really elite institutions like your Harvard's and Berkeley's will probably be around for a long time because there are professions that do require those status-based pieces of paper. There are elite organizations that, you know, will attract elite clientele. But at the same time, if the mass of the job market and particularly the mass of the employers who are starting to recruit, not for credentials, but for talents and for aptitude, shifts, there's going to be a lot more democratization of opportunities. So I think overall, this is quite a healthy trend. I think that we probably at a university level globally, again, South Africa has a deficit. We do need to catch up. But globally, the higher education industry is overpriced and it's under-delivering in terms of life quality that's delivering for its students. They've invested both time and money in their programs. The university is going to have to up their game. They're going to have to shift how they teach, what they teach, and justify their place in the value chain, just like all of us have to do every time we try and land a client or land a job. Well, the world changing at a head-spinning pace. Bronwyn Williams, a Trends Translator and Future Finance Specialist at Flux Trends. Thank you so much for that conversation. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB. Action-led insights in Africa's non-bank financial institution sector to drive collaborative impact through the APSA Insights Series. APSA is a registered FSP. The Money Show. The Africa Business Report. The African Business Focus with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by SAA, celebrating 90 years, connecting dreams, bridging continents and soaring higher. We're now covering Africa Business Focus, some of the business stories that came through from the continent. We're going to be doing that with Diana Games, a Chief Executive at Africa at Work, a business consultancy that's going to be taking us through some of the biggest headlines that have come through on the continent in terms of business and other interesting stories. We'll be covering that with you shortly. Another great story that came through on the market today was SARS gunning for Sasfin, of course, that 4.6 
billion rand slapped on Sasfin today, coming through 4.9 billion rand rather in terms of damages claims uh, from SARS to Sasfin. Sasfin has received an almost 5 billion rand claim uh, from the South African Revenue Service, described as unprecedented in South African law by Sasfin. Uh, CEO at Sasfin, Michael Sassoon, says the group emphatically rejects the claim and has vowed to defend a matter in a process that could take several years. Now, in terms of what this claim is about, is the damages claim related to the expatriation of money uh, going back to 2014, in which a criminal syndicate colluded with former employees of Sasfin Bank, who mostly worked in its foreign exchange department, to allegedly launder money and bypass foreign exchange laws. Now, SARS has come knocking, uh, hitting Sasfin with a 4.9 billion rand claim. Sasfin has vowed to fight the claim which arises from SARS' purported inability to collect income tax, valuated tax and penalties owed by SASFIN clients that were allegedly part of an international criminal syndicate. This, of course, might play itself out for a very, very long time in South African courts. Let's now cover other stories that have come through uh, on the continent and looking at the Africa Business Focus. Diana Games, uh, Chief Executive at Africa at Work, joining us for those stories. Uh, in Vic Falls, uh, Diana's uh, to cover UN Economic Commission for Africa Conference of Ministers of Finance. What's happening there? Well, it hasn't started yet. Um, it's actually uh, starting tomorrow. So I'm afraid no big headlines, as you had promised earlier. But um, uh, I think it's it's sometimes it's just worth sort of having a, a bird's eye view into this kind of pan-African bureaucracies. And in this case, the um, Economic Commission for Africa, this is the annual meeting uh, by ministers of finance, planning and economic development from across the continent, literally South Sudan to South Africa to Marrakesh, et cetera. So, um, so it's, it's, it's an interesting kind of discussion about about um uh, you know what 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 keeps them maybe not awake at night that might be a bit strong but certainly what is occupying um the the kind of pan african um schedule of 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 events and the main theme of this uh, this week's meeting is is financing uh, green economies in africa closing the finance gap etc but it's also addressing there's some sort of hot topics like addressing the debt question which has really been a big issue in africa and still is over the past year or two um, and and the perennial, which is domestic resource uh, mobilisation, which includes you know how to get more taxes, how to raise uh, the the level of, of of taxes in these countries. I mean, South Africa is one of the highest in on the continent, uh, but there's many. Even Nigeria is one of the, has one of the lowest tax uh, mobilised tax payment rates in on the continent. So it's a huge issue across across Africa, and and of course you know we, we're looking at self financing. That has been a a theme of this of these meetings for some time is how do we become as African countries more self-sufficient um, and I, I don't know whether there's been really much progress in these ways but uh, you know these are the kind of issues and also just looking at the I think the, another perennial is uh, redoing the or, or reshaping the, the um, global financial architecture you know we want Africa more African presence etc in that and that has been something that's been raised before um, and I think Africa is getting a lot more assertive about those issues as time goes on but we'll see as i say it's, it's just starting now but i think you know these are it's a kind of a, a look into this this world and of course being hosted in victoria falls which is typically these conferences are it's an annual 
event are hosted in, in African sort of capitals or, or large cities. So Victoria Falls is a new type of destination for these hundreds of bureaucrats pouring in here. And, um, uh, you know, it's, I think the Zimbabwe fought quite hard to, to have it and have it in Victoria Falls. Um, and of course, this is a bit of a downtime in tourism. So post Christmas and so on. So it's actually the town is, is full. The hotels are full um, of all these with all these people. And um, so that's really that's really good for the for the town. And of course, President Monangagwa will be attending um, on Monday. Um, and uh, the last time I bumped into, as it were, President Monangagwa in, some, in in Victoria Falls was about two years ago when I got pushed off the road by his 30-strong car cavalcade um, as he rushed to open yet another conference. I suspect we'll see a, a repeat of that on, on Monday when he, when he rushes into the venue in high kind of um, style. Yeah, I was, Diana, thinking you actually shook hands and had a, a short conversation, but you were pushed off the road. Of course, uh, the Vic Falls, a, a great <laughs> backdrop in terms of this particular conference, but uh, food insecurity in Zim- insecurity rather in Zimbabwe is still uh, quite high. The World Food Program are uh, putting a lot of focus on that, and hopefully some of those issues uh, will get tackled in this particular uh, conference. And then the African Development Bank uh, 2024 report saying 11 of the 20 fastest growing economies in the world in 2024 will be in Africa. South Africa clearly not amongst those who've been struggling in terms of getting that up. Yes, South Africa, definitely not. In fact, none of, well, I mean, uh, Nigeria, South Africa, the big economies in sub-Saharan Africa are not on that list. It is quite a quite a diversified list. And we're talking, I think, the highest, uh, interestingly, the highest Forecast. These remember these are forecasts. Uh, the high, highest forecast growth is with uh, Niger, which is interestingly under really struggling under ECOWAS sanctions after the coup d'état last year. Um, and uh, but they are looking to export gas this year. And and a lot of the a lot of the companies in this top list are in some way linked to the oil and gas industry. You know we're still looking at an Africa dominated by resources at some or other level. Although you're seeing that you know some of the the players in the in the top of that list are like Senegal and Cote d'Ivoire, which are much more diversified economies. So that's a a good thing. We're starting to see a, a breakdown of of you know oil and gas. Um, still being a big driver, but but it's not the only driver as it has been, or or not such a uh, hasn't created such a dependency as it has, for example, in Nigeria, um, Angola, and other countries like that. So Libya is also in that list. Um, also have been through tough times uh, over the last decade or and more, but um, now we're starting to reaping the benefits again of its of its hydrocarbons um, industry. Uganda's looking finally at, I think, um, exporting its first oil um, next year. So there's a lot of oil and gas kind of stuff happening there, but it also includes countries like um, Ethiopia, which is benefiting from um, uh, you're opening up its economy, I think, has long awaited by many investors. Um, and despite the war, it's still, it's still, even though it's coming off a fairly low base, and one has to remember that, you know, GDP figures don't exist in isolation. Um, and Rwanda, which is always a player given its highly innovative, effective economy. Um, so it's it's all good news. And I think they, they're also predicting that the, the continent, continental growth will be higher than the, the global average. And I think that's probably no surprise. We're seeing a lot of issues um, and, and a lot of predictions of low growth and, and in fact, um, a, a real slump in, in parts of, of the uh, sort of international um, global picture. So let's hope it pans out that way. As I say, eventually, you know, it might a lot of these might be off the low base, but, you know, as the old adage goes, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats. 
Yeah, it's definitely good news uh, given that it's diversified economies from the African continent and not just Nigeria and South Africa as has been the usual story. That was The Money Show. Personal Finance with Warren Ingram. Welcome back to The Money Show. Time for our personal finance feature. Answering the question today, is residential property a great investment? Now, with interest rates hitting a 15-year high, weak economic conditions and demographic shifts in the country, the demand for rentals has increased notably in most areas. Uh, but is residential investing as safe as houses? Uh, we joined now by Warren Ingram, co-founder of Galileo Capital, looking at residential property as an investment, people will tell you, those informed or uninformed, that uh, you should at least have some sort of rental of a property portfolio. But is this a good one to get into in this particular market, Warren? You know, Mateo, I don't know about you, but but when I was growing up, especially as I was about to start work for the first time and earn my first rand, uh, pr- pretty much everyone in my family and circle of friends and my parents' friends was telling me, you know, d- don't uh, d- don't rent. You know, make sure you you own your own property and don't uh, pay off the landlord's bond. Uh, and and then lots of entrepreneurs saying, you know, they love the idea of buying property because they can see it, they can go there, they can visit it, they can control it. And and for for them, a much better place to invest money than something that they don't understand called the stock market, you know, and, and the way it goes up and down like like crazy. Um, and and to me, it's kind of a South African thing, you know. We we love property, but yeah, uh, w- when I look at it, I'm I'm not convinced. I mean, so so maybe let, let's try and be balanced here. Let, let let's look at the the positives. The positives are. Um, you, you don't have to, you know, put, put down all the money to buy the place that you're going to rent out to somebody. So you can put down a deposit. I know some banks will even give you a hundred percent bond, which is a little scary, but they will. Those are hard um, to come by these days. <laughs> what <is it? laughs> uh, the, the, if they if they think you're credit worthy, they'll lend you lots of money. Uh, trust trust me. Uh, but but but, uh, but but yeah, sure. So so you could borrow the money to invest. Um, you know, if you've managed to find that fantastic tenant that pays off. Your your rent for the next twenty years, then uh, th- then you get a great tenant who can pay off the mortgage, uh, and and it is something which moves in price. It tends to move a lot more slowly than bonds, uh, de- derivatives, shares, unit trusts, all those things. You know, uh, pr- property prices definitely move, but they don't jump up and down in you know twenty percent at a time. And and you don't get someone like me shouting on the radio saying. Uh, gee, you know, your your house price just dropped twenty percent yesterday. You know, it just doesn't happen like that. It happens like a slow moving train. Uh, so, so from that perspective, I think uh, you know, I can see why why people like the idea of of residential property. Um, and certainly, a lot of our parents would remember the price they paid for the house that they live in. Uh, and so, if they bought it twenty or thirty years ago, they'll they'll remember what it was, and then they'll tell you, the you know, I only value. paid a hundred thousand rand for that house, you know, thirty years ago, and it's worth two million now. It's the best investment ever. Uh, but but that's not the case, Mateo. It's it's inflation, you know. So so. When I look at it, uh, and, and I try and be be rational and objective about it, I look at the numbers, and and numbers tell me 
that uh, you know the, the price of houses does grow faster than the inflation rate. But depending on what you look at, there used to be some great numbers by ABSA. They used to keep the house price index for a long period of time, going all the way back to the 60s. And more recently, FNB have got a, a, their own version of the house price index. But but combine those two, uh, I think house prices, they, they grow at around about 1% or 2% a year above inflation. Uh, uh, you know, compare that to the stock market, w- w- which grows at sort of five to to eight percent above inflation, and and I'm I'm not convinced I want to be putting my money into houses. I'm not so sure that my money is safe as houses. Is it a matter then of location, location, location? Because CF Property Group saying uh, those on the Atlantic seaboard, uh, those that are in Santon, can rent out some of these houses from between 10,000 to 100,000 rand, depending on which address you have uh, for the home. So uh, in terms of an investment in that way, where a lot of foreigners are trying to come into the country, you can turn it into an Airbnb. There's a lot of um, you know attraction into having a property as an investment, especially Especially if you can turn those sort of numbers. Uh, I mean, it's a fair point. I mean, we could probably say the same. You know, if you were if you were clever enough to buy, you know, Nvidia two years ago, and, and look what it's doing today. Um, and you know, we can we can pick the the great. Uh, you know properties that that have done well, the great sectors of the property market that have done well. But but the thing is that requires a, a huge amount of skill in and an ability to analyze where where the demographic trends are going. And and the truth is, you know, once we all know about it, once you and I are talking about it, and and you know our hairdressers are telling us about it. The, the big moves probably happened already, you know, and, and and so you need to be finding the next one. You need to be finding the next good story about where demographics are going. And and who knows, you know, whether it's the CBD of Joburg because something miraculous is going to happen there, or it's the the East Coast because they're building highways through you know through Transkei. Um, I mean, I don't know, I don't have a clue. But but I think the problem with with property is you really need to be, you know, kind of looking. 10, 20 years down the line and, and figuring out where people are moving in, in large numbers. You know, I, I would I would have loved to have been the genius to to figure out that, you know, Hermanus was the place to buy you know, 10 years ago, but but I, I wasn't. Um, and, and so I think we've got to be careful about being caught out by the one or two areas that are are doing incredibly well because it hides the fact that there are you know, many more areas that are really, really struggling. You know, anybody that's tried to sell a kind of a three or four million rand house in Bryanston and Joburg is, is will, will tell you that's not a, a fun thing to do. You're down kind of after 10 or 15 years, you know, and that, that's really lousy returns. And then uh, someone who's keen, of course, to invest in residential property will tell you, uh, I buy them cheap, I buy them cheap, I fix them up, I flip them and sell them for much more. But it would be harder than to move a property on the market at this particular time at high interest rates. Banks are, are, are having defaults from some of the customers as the interest rates go up. So not really a fun time in the industry in terms of moving uh, properties and selling them for profit. Agreed. So, so I mean, what's interesting to me is if you if you look for opportunities, you know, you often find them where everyone else is selling in a panic. Uh, and and as you said, interest rates are are at you know not necessarily record highs, but but certainly you know the highest they've been in a long period of time, and 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 consumers are really struggling, and there are people out there that have got mortgages that are that are suffering now, uh, and from that perspective, they they might be you know desperate sellers, and so someone you know who who has a bit of vision in terms of uh, where, where they think demographic trends are going, and and a bit of guts to say well. I'll buy what other people are selling. 
Um, and and then, as you said, you know, may, maybe they go in and they they clean the place up and you know uh, you know fix it up a bit, put a bit of capital in. They, they might be in a position where they're they're benefiting, uh, you know, from from other people's distress and and being able to at least generate some good rent uh, from very low cost properties. You know that that might have been you know ten or fifteen percent higher in price, you know, two years ago. So so I think that you know I think I think my argument there will be that that's not. Really really a passive investment you know if you yeah. if you're if you're buying a property and fixing it up and renting it out I, I i would call that a business that happens to be in the business of property you know and and, and then my question is you know can you take some capital and do some some kind of a side hustle on the weekends and in the evenings and and make even more money uh, with a lot less capital and a lot less risk because that's the comparison. It's not, you know, buy the top forty index and sit back versus buy the rental property and sit back. I think the two are are quite different. Let's get in then into the headaches of, um, you know, owning a property as an investment. There's a lot of cons that come with it, and a lot of, um, you know, unstated costs that come with it. It can be quite expensive to run. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think the, the first one is, uh, that, you know, in, in investment world, liquidity is a big thing. And, and just to just to explain that jargon. So liquidity is the ability to to buy or sell your investment very quickly. Uh, and and that, that does not describe uh, owning a residential property in South Africa. It takes a long time uh, to get that done. You know, if you're incredibly lucky, it'll take three months from the time you actually sign all the papers with w- 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 between the buyer and the seller to get the, the, the transfer done. Uh, but that doesn't include all the time you spend trying to find a buyer. And when the property market is down and and you might not own the the, the property in the in the most favoured area, then you could sit on the on the property market, you know, for two or three years before you manage to to sell your your house. So so liquidity for me is a huge issue, uh, you know, for, against property and it's a, a real downside. Um, and of course, what will happen is, you know, you'll need to sell that property when when life has kind of hit you, you know, from all sides, and and it'll be at that exact moment when you need to sell the thing that you can't. So so liquidity is 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 a real issue. Uh, and then, you know, if I'd said to you, Mateo, I'm going to sell you a top 40 index and it's going to cost you 5% to sell one day and about 3% up front and it's going to cost you 2% a year just to do the admin, uh, I, I would hope that you're going to tell me where to go fly. Uh, <laughs> but that's what happens with, with residential property. We pay all these costs to the lawyers, the state agents. We pay to maintain them. We pay taxes to the municipality we pay True. levies if it's a, a you know body corporate the the, the transaction costs of, of properties getting in and, and maintaining and getting out are are high um and and so just to understand that you know when, when you look at those costs compare them to what else you can buy when you make an investment decision and and i would argue you know re- residential property is kind of an expensive thing and uh, and and that doesn't even include you know the the costs of of managing the property and and what i mean by that is some people just say you know what i'll just get an agent the agent says thanks very much i'll take 10% of your rent every month for for finding your tenant and if it's a lousy tenant and they wreck the kitchen and the bathrooms and they don't want to get out, oh yeah, I'm so sorry about that. You know, let me find you another tenant and I'll charge you ten percent again. So, so uh, you know, it's not just you know fire and forget when you when you're buying property and hoping that an agent's got your best interest at heart. That's not always the case. Uh, and then the the big one for me that that's kind of really problematic is you know if you're a landlord 
and you're doing the right thing. You know, you, you want to rent out to a, a good tenant. You you know, you let them into your property. You charge them a month's uh, d- deposit, and they come in and kind of three months in, they say, "Oh, I'm sorry, I, I don't I don't have money for rent this month," um, and they do it again the following month. All of a sudden, you're stuck in a nightmare scenario where you've got to pay the bank. You can't phone the bank yeah. and say, "Look, I can't pay my bond this month." You can't uh, come up with stories. You know, they, they, and and then it takes you six months to get the tenant out and, and, and a huge amount of legal fees. So, so tenants have enormous rights in South Africa, and that's good when you've got bad landlords. But if you're a good landlord and you've got a bad tenant, well, you know, that's, that's a tough story. So, so I, I think that, you know, that for me is also a real, uh, a, a real problem when, when, you, when you get a lousy tenant who just takes you for a ride. And unfortunately, you do get tenants like that. So, right so, in you conversation know, all- with Warren Ingram, uh, if you can hold on for me, uh, Warren, of course, will pick it up after the uh, break. Looking at the benefits and uh, pitfalls of investing in property, is it a good thing to go into? There are some uh, cons, but there also are some pros uh, in discussion then with Warren Ingram about what to look out for when investing in property. The Money Show. Personal Finance with Warren Ingram. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB, driving action-led insights and uh, that create impact when actioned with collaboration through the Insights series. APSA is a registered FSP. In conversation with Warren Ingram, co-founder of Galileo Capital, talking personal finance, should you be investing in residential property? We've been talking about the high transaction costs, uh, Warren, uh, bond registrations, estate agent uh, fees, a transfer due repairs and maintenance that are all on you if you have a residential property as an investment but let's talk about the returns i know you touched on the comparison between uh, investing in the stock market and also getting returns on a property as an investment um, can you find yourself in a situation especially in uh, if the economic cycle changes um, you know interest rates are cut that you find yourself that you're investing in property now and you are going to garner some sort of return later Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I kind of uh, started work uh, as as we had our democratic elections for the first time. And, and there was a huge kind of demographic shift in the way that our whole country could live and work. And, and it caused, uh, you know, major changes in the, in the property market. So you, you could almost just buy any property development off plan and, and you would make money over a two or three or four month period, just as there was so much demand. Uh, and and I'm not. Uh, I mean, obviously, we won't see that kind of a, a dynamic in the next few months. But but there is a good case to say that if interest rates start coming down quite quickly, and and let's say you know load shedding you know does come to an end uh, on, on large scale by the end of this year, and we see a bit of progress on ports, the transnet, etc. You know, and the elections go well. I don't know what that means, but let's just say they go well. That that you find South Africans feeling a bit more confident, a bit more positive. You know, especially load shedding, I think has such a big impact on the way we think and feel about our country now. And and so if we see that and we see a swing in our fortunes as a as a country, you, you could see an uptick in demand for property and potentially people who've been sitting on the sidelines might start to say, well, actually, I'm tired of being a tenant. I do want to buy or or people kind of, you know, piling back into the cities and get, giving up on this work from home stuff, uh, you, you know, if that's what companies enforce. Yeah. So, so, I mean, to be fair, Mateo, I think there is a there is an argument to say that, you know, the property cycle will turn and you can make good money again. Then looking at our listener question uh, for this week after covering uh, that residential property topic, um, 
Bob wants to know, uh, Warren, uh, if living in South Africa, is it better to invest through a RAND-denominated offshore feeder fund or with the weakening RAND and uncertainty in the country, uh, is a direct US dollar offshore investment better? So what strategy would you, would you use there given those uh, factors are stated there? Uh, I think, but you know, but, uh, Bob, it's a kind, of, kind of a master's thesis answer, but I'll give it to you in, in a few seconds. I, I mean, my view is, that uh, if you live in South Africa and you plan to to live out your days here, then you know if you've got just enough money to retire safely, then then I think you should have about twenty five percent of your money invested overseas, uh, just as a very good diversification tool. Uh, if you've got enough money to give some to your kids, then you should increase your offshore allocation to 50%. And if you're part of the 1% of the 1%, then, and you're going to give money to your grandchildren, then potentially push that up to 75% offshore. How you do that, I, I mean, I think if you're doing larger amounts, it does make sense to to send some money directly offshore. If you're doing smaller amounts, th- then I think feeder funds are are really good because you, you know that, that you're not paying foreign exchange transaction costs. The, the tax reporting is easy because it's just a normal uh, South African unit trust as far as SARS is concerned. Uh, you can sell those quite quickly uh, if you need to, so they're highly liquid. Um, and, and you've got quite a big choice of, of, of feeder funds. So I, I like feeder funds for, for investors that are doing monthly debit orders, smaller lump sums. But but when you're when you're counting your investments in the you know three or four million level, uh, Rand level, then then I think you should really consider converting your foreign ex- you know your money into foreign exchange and and actually investing it overseas. And how much are we talking, uh, looking at these particular strategies? How much should you have in your purse to even look at that direction? Um, I, I mean, I think I think the nice thing about a, a feeder fund, Mateo, is you can I think you could probably put in a thousand bucks. So so we're not you know we're not required to be multi millionaires here, but but I think uh, you know if, if you if you want to build up some offshore exposure and you you know you've got a a few thousand rand a month debit order, or, or a few thousand rand a month as a lump sum. Then, by all means, do the do, do the feeder fund. L- look at something that's nice and global and properly diversified. Uh, but but if you're looking at uh, you know investing offshore, uh, I, yeah. I think you you need to kind of have a minimum of about a million rand to start, and and then do do sizable chunks. You know, kind of three four hundred thousand rand as, as an absolute minimum when you're converting rands to offshore currencies to to keep topping up what you've started with. But but don't do ten or twenty thousand rand. The, the the costs will be so high that it will just hurt the returns that you could, you could get from your, your investments overseas. Well, that was Warren Ingram, co-founder of Galileo Capital. Sound advice, he didn't even charge you for it. Thank you so much uh, for joining us for this particular conversation, looking at a resident.